are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire. Buy me a cup of coffee. Shot in the beer, as they say sometimes. I have on the line today on the Zoom, so we'll be on YouTube as well as on the podcast here, if you're listening on the podcast, a retired police officer. Greg Beach retired as the chief of police of Saratoga Springs, New York. He has written two books about the dark, seamy underbelly of Saratoga Springs. Greg, welcome. Now, the, the first of your books is All of the Law and the World Won't Stop Them. The second was A Gangster's Paradise for you guys that want to go out and look those books up on Amazon, and we'll talk about them more later on. But first, as all these listeners know, Greg, I'm a retired copper too. So tell us a little bit about your career in law enforcement. Hey, Gary. Well, thanks for having me. I spent 25 years in law enforcement. I started when I was 21 years old. I started in Burlington, Vermont, actually walking a beat, and I worked there for a short time before I got hired by the Saratoga Springs Police Department. And I'm born and raised Saratoga Springs. I'm fifth generation. My family's been there for five generations and uh, decided to go back home and become a police officer. Walked a beat, you know, regular routine patrol, worked in the narcotics unit for several years. And after about 11 years or so in patrol and narcotics, I ended up you know, working my way up the chain, sergeant, lieutenant, assistant chief. And then finally, I became chief in uh, 2012 or 2013. I was chief for six years, and then I retired last year. So, wow. I, you uh, know, a chief, I think nationally, the average is three years. So you did pretty good. Yeah. You doubled the national average on being a chief of police. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't retire initially, so I had to wait till I could get into <laughs> oh, the retirement. You, you had to hang on. <laughs> yeah, that, was a, that was part of it for sure. <laughs> really? But I enjoy it. Like I said, you know, I'm a generation Saratogian, work in my hometown. So, you cool. know, I just, one point I decided, hey, there's more to life than being a police officer and yeah. decided to pull the plug, pursue some other options. Yeah. Well, as all the listeners out there, people that know me pretty well, off a lot of them that I did the same thing after 25 years, I just decided that I wanted to do something else. Maybe I should have done when I was younger. I went to law school. I practiced law before I got into this creative endeavor of writing books and making documentaries and doing the podcast. My mom always said I never lived up to my potential when I was young. So I, I think I finally had to try to live up to my, my potential. Maybe that's what you're doing now. I don't know. Of course, you went above your potential, maybe became the chief of police. I was only a sergeant. Yeah, don't they say you always get promoted one step further than you should have been? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> well, I made it to sergeant one rank higher than I ever thought I'd get. I, I just always wanted to be a detective out there dealing with the bad guys on the street on a day-to-day basis. Anyhow, movie right along. Greg, let's start with your first book, All the Law and the World Won't Stop Them. Now, what prompted you to get into this history of Saratoga Springs? And on the surface, you know, if you don't know much about the history of it, it seems like it's a nice, sleepy little town. But you do have a really well-known racetrack there, which probably drew a lot of gamblers out of New York City. Tell us a little bit about the early days of Saratoga Springs and probably during the Prohibition times. Sure. Well, Saratoga has always been a destination town. The Mineral Springs, of course, back in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, that really started to draw a lot of the wealthy visitors not just from like New York and Boston, but even as far away as the South. You know, the, the wealthy landowners from the South would come up to Saratoga Springs. To make a relatively long story short, a guy named John Morrissey, 
who was the heavyweight bare knuckle boxing champion of the world, came to Saratoga Springs. And he is the one who built the racetrack along with a couple other guys in the 1860s. Now, Morrissey also ran some gambling joints down in New York City and other parts of the country. And their racetrack was so successful that it just brought more visitors to Saratoga Springs. And eventually, Saratoga had the two largest hotels in the world at one point. 1,500 rooms right in the downtown area. And John Morrissey figured, well, if I can get the people's money gambling during the day, I can also get their money gambling at night. So he built this wonderful gambling hall that still stands today. It's in Congress Park in Saratoga Springs. And it was the most magnificent gambling hall in the country. And you would have Supreme Court judges, national politicians, and the wealthiest people in the world would come to Saratoga Springs. He event, of course, Morrissey eventually died and a man named Richard Canfield took it over. And they, they call it the Canfield Casino today. It's owned by the city. And Canfield actually turned it into an even better location. He bought the property around the area, put some Italian gardens in, added a restaurant, and they would call the place the Monte Carlo of America. So it was the place to come gamble. One of the hotels, they called the porch, the million dollar mile, where all the millionaires of the country would come and do their business in the summer. So Saratoga had this reputation as being this wonderful vacation town. And the amount of visitors came that spent money there would sustain the town for the rest of the year. And a lot of it was centered on the gambling. Now, of course, when you allow one person to gamble, other people are going to want to gamble. And to make even a longer story short, eventually the town father said, listen, we can have the high-end gambling at the Canfield Casino, but we just can't have all these dives around town. So they started to shut down all the gambling places around town. And the mayor had a gambling joint right on the main street. He got into a political battle with the state senator. He eventually lost. But the pressure they put on Canfield forced him to give up in 1907 was his last year. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. Saratoga then went clean for about 10 years until Arnold Rothstein came. I was wondering when we would get to get to Arnold Rothstein. It would be a natural, you know, the, the big gamblers in New York City would look up to this mecca of, of gambling it, with all those rich people coming in. It would just be a natural to start drawing those guys because they could smell that money from mile, hundreds of miles off. Oh, Yeah. Yes. So Rothstein, he had been coming since 1904, and he actually pawned his wife's jewelry in Saratoga Springs because he had a sure bet. Ah. He was was married at the judge's house right in town, and when he pawned his wife's jewelry, he went and made the bet, and then he went and got his wife's jewelry back. So (laughs) I tell you that whole story about Marcy and Canfield just to kind of set the stage because what they did for corruption and graft, they would pay the townspeople directly. Like they would donate to charities. Like if your church needed new steps, they would give you a check to fix it. Well, you know, Arnold Rothstein, he's not interested in that. So he just comes with a suitcase full of money in 1917 and he pays off all the politicians and the police. That allows him to open up a place called the Arrowhead Inn. And he's so phenomenally successful that he tells everybody he's going to make everyone forget about Canfield and Morrissey. And he builds a place called the Brook. And the Brook was a fabulous gambling joint with dining, entertainment, and gambling all in one spot. Sort of like the resorts we see in Las Vegas today. Yeah. So 
I don't have any proof of this, but I happen to think the Las Vegas model was born on Church Street in Saratoga Springs because three of his underlings, up-and-comers, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and Dutch Schultz, they all worked for Rothstein when they were young men at the Brook. So maybe they took the business model and Lansky and, and Bugsy Siegel, I think they may, might have took it out to Las Vegas and really made it big time out there. So yeah, more, more Rothstein had the Brook. Yeah, you know, another thing is after that, in on up in the 30s, all over the United States, they opened these places called carpet joints. And this was kind of like, to me, like the original carpet joint. And a carpet joint is usually a club that's set just outside the city limits of a major city. We had a couple here in Kansas City that would try to have high-end dining and maybe a floor show and then have gambling. And a lot of the wealthy people would come out of the city and gamble out there. They were always ran by mob guys, and they were here in Kansas City for sure. Usually the Jewish mob guys that were connected to the Italian mob guys many times, like Russ and Meyer Lansky. So it's, you know, I think they pioneered a lot of things there in Saratoga Springs. I have to wonder, in Arkansas, just south of Kansas City here, about 300 miles, there's a place called Hot Springs, Arkansas. They had mineral waters, Mineral Springs drew people for that, and they also had a racetrack. So then they started having illegal gambling joints in all of Arkansas. Most places were dry. It was that rigorous in the South, of course, to have dry counties, and most of the counties were dry except Hot Springs, and Hot Springs was wide open with alcohol and gambling and prostitution, and criminals would come to hide out there and kind of have a little R&R in Hot Springs that's exactly like Saratoga Springs, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I've heard that. I don't know an awful lot about Hot Springs, but you know, in my research, that name kind of comes up. I think Luciano had a connection with Hot Springs. Maybe he was hiding out there. I don't remember the story exactly off the top of my head. But yeah, I've heard that the similarities between Hot Springs, Arkansas, and Saratoga Springs, New York, are kind of uncanny. Hey, but can I tell you a quick story about Rothstein's associates up in Saratoga Springs? You yeah. might find this interesting. So. When Rothstein comes up to Saratoga and he pays off the officials, that kind of opens it up for everybody. And some of his underlings opened up a place on South Broadway here in Saratoga Springs, and they apparently didn't pay off the right people, and they got raided by the police. Well, the police brought all the evidence down to the station, and the police chief decided that the safest place for this evidence was in the jail cells in Saratoga Springs. So he locks all the equipment in one of the jail cells overnight. And when he's convinced that it's secure, he goes home. Well, at 10 o'clock the next morning, the gamblers who had their stuff taken came to the back door of the station and a guy named Edward Carroll, Sergeant Edward Carroll, lets them in, brings them up to the jail cells, unlocks it, and they make off with all of their stuff. Now, the newspaper is right across the street from the station and they must have got tipped off because a reporter writes the whole story and he says it they were running down the street and one of them tripped and dropped the poker chips all over the sidewalk. So they scattered all over and they had to pick them all up. So a couple interesting things about this is they steal the evidence right out of the police station. And three weeks later, the police go and raid another joint and seize back all of the evidence that was stolen from them three weeks before. One of the guy, one of Rothstein's underlings, a guy named Rachel Brown, was the head man at this place on South Broadway. And this raid took place in July of 1919. Rachel Brown in September or October was part of the guys that fixed the 1919 World Series. He got indicted for fixing for the Black Sox scandal. So in Saratoga Springs, before that, the Black Sox scandal, there's some evidence that that conspiracy was sort of developed in Saratoga Springs at the Brook. 
involving the guys, including the manager of the Brook for Rothstein. They all, those are the guys that got arrested. They, so they were gambling in Saratoga in July and by World Series time, they're in Chicago fixing the World Series. I thought that was kind of an interesting little coincidence. Yeah, I would say that that plot was hatched up there. If Rothstein was up there and, and other people connected to it, that because they didn't just hatch that plot out overnight. They hatched that oh, plot no. out over a series of months. And sure. you know, they had to send out their informants to find out what players might be amenable to taking bribe and who was mad. And, and you know, those gamblers, professional gamblers, they are constantly trying to get sources into professional sports. That's why they have such rigid rules about no association in joints. For example, they'll have a list of joints when they come to a city. I know at one time when the opposing teams came to Kansas City, there was a series of about five joints that they were told, do not go into those joints. And of course, some of them did because we caught some of them in it. But but, you know, there's like an attraction to that kind of fast lifestyle with young athletes because they got beautiful, loose women and action and everything in these joints. So it's always a problem that professional sports has to look out for. Interesting, interesting. It started right there in Saratoga Springs. Along those same lines, one of the top jockeys in the 1920s was caught at the brook. Mm. And the, they told him, hey, don't go in there again. And he went there anyway. So they suspended him for the rest of the season. He couldn't <laughs> ride anymore at the track. <laughs> yeah, that's another place back in those days when horse racing was such a big deal. They didn't bet on football games back then. Uh, they didn't bet on basketball games. They bet on baseball and horse racing. Horse racing was huge. So having yeah. your tentacles had to own a jockey or a trainer or two, was that was a gold stone kind of person to have so you could fix those races and figure out who had the edge. And a lot of those guys, they enjoyed the races. I mean, Luciano was a big fan of the races. He would go there almost every day. Rothstein actually owned a horse that won the Traverse Stakes, which is the big race up here in Saratoga Springs. Al Capone and a guy named Anthony Carfano, little Augie Pisano, they called him. They had a stable up in Saratoga that little Augie used to run for, oh, really? for those guys. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Interesting. You know, yeah, another so- interesting thing about those times was the mobsters and culture, upper class, middle class culture, really around each other. Today, it's, it's a huge no-no. Don't get caught, you know, if you want to ever be a politician or if you're in business, don't have some newspaper article come out, somebody seeing you with the boss of the crime family or some politically connected politician to the crime family and with you at some charity event. But those guys back then, it was, they were all, it was just different back then. They mixed, shall we say. Yeah. I always say it during my presentations when I talk about my book is that we do have to remember that it was different times back then. You know, people didn't really expect the same things out of the police as they do today. Undercover work was virtually unheard of. (laughs) Informants, you know, informants, the public didn't generally approve of informants. So, you know, it it was just different times. And I tell people in Saratoga, look, if it weren't for the gambling all those years, Saratoga might have died as a community. Yeah, you know, because it there was, it brought so much money that it was able to survive, and it almost did when after Kefauver came through and they had the investigation here up in Saratoga, the town almost did did go under. So there's a lot of lean years in the the 50s and 60s and 70s in Saratoga Springs, and it's it's rebounded since. Again, it's a mecca of yeah tourism again. So oh, I, I didn't really realize that Kefauver Commission looked at the situation in Saratoga Springs. I, I didn't really realize that. Yeah. 
Well, we're jumping way forward now. Yeah, that's we, true. We've before, gone from before like we were 20s in the twenties. Fifties, <laughs> yeah. you're right. So let's fill in a little bit. Here. All right, let's. Okay. Prohibition comes along. So yeah. what happens? In, you know, during prohibition, there's even more money to be made by Rothstein and all these guys are already ensconced and have joints and everything. And so now prohibition. Plus, you're halfway between New York City and Canada. So yeah. there had to be a lot of action prohibition. Right. So Saratoga Springs is essentially the midpoint between New York City and Montreal. And it sits right on the bootleg trail, which Interstate 87 is what you can see on a map today. But there's a smaller road that was the primary road. It's called Route 9. And that was the bootleg trail. And a lot of people don't know this, but northern New York, especially in the early years of Prohibition, made more arrests and more seizures than any other district in the country. Because that liquor was just flowing over the border from Montreal and Quebec. And Saratoga sits, go ahead. Greg, I have an idea. The state of New York should have some historical markers and mark out the bootleg trail from Canada, from the border down to New York City. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? (laughs) I I think they should. I think they should. (laughs) Anyhow, go ahead. I just had that thought. I have these thoughts that jump in my head. I got to get them out. Right. So the bootleg trail, it comes right through Saratoga Springs and, and actually it ran right directly behind the police station. So all of that liquor came down. And the local community kind of developed their own organized crime group here in Saratoga. And it was led by a guy named Louis Doc Ferrone. And he had influence in Saratoga up to the border, over to like Utica area. So upstate Adirondack area of New York, he was pretty powerful. And it kind of kept the violence out of Saratoga Springs with few exceptions. So in the 20s during Prohibition, that's when Lansky, Luciano, Joe Adonis, when those guys started to come up and they started taking interests in these gambling places. So like you were talking about in Kansas City on the outskirts of town, they would have these carpet joints. Well, Saratoga Springs City is actually 32 square miles, but the downtown is just a small part of it, which is where all the the people live. Out by Saratoga Lake, which is still within the city, they built a bunch of carpet joints, like you said. So they had the benefit of having the city police in their pocket, but they were sort of five or 10 miles outside of town where they could kind of gamble and be left alone in these plush joints. And at the time, you know, they were spending, I want to say $100,000, $150,000 on upgrades for these essentially barns that they're turning into casinos. So they had about six or five or six gambling joints out by the lake. And that's where the the mob guys really came in and started taking an interest in the 20s and 30s in Saratoga Springs. The guy I mentioned, Little Augie Pisano, he ended up being uh, one of the capital regimes in the Genovese crime family into the 1950s, and he was assassinated in 1959 near LaGuardia Airport. He rose through the ranks in the 20s when he was first getting started in Saratoga. He ended up shooting a night watchman at one of the uh, lake houses. Police chased him all through town and recovered the gun, but they never could convict him. So his early years in Saratoga, he was trying to take over one of the places. He kind of got fought off a little bit, but he came back and he had an interest for a little while in Saratoga. But Lansky was smart. He, they didn't come in guns a-blazing. They just came yeah. in with the money. They took their share out of these different places. And so that would that's, be Lansky. That's, what about Frank Costello? Did he have any interest up there? He did have an interest up in Saratoga Springs. Uh, his... He owned the Copacabana nightclub in New York City. Yeah. And when summertime came, the summer season in Saratoga, his staff would come up and they would staff the Piping Rock Club. 
Okay. So the Piping Rock Club was sort of the crown jewel of the the mobs casinos up in Saratoga. So Frank Costello, Joe Adonis, Meyer Lansky, they all had an, they all had a cut of it along with our local guy, Doc Froney. Each person would get a little payoff out of it. But Costello, he didn't come up to Saratoga a lot as far as I can tell. Okay. But during the Kefauver hearings, he did he did admit that he bankrolled it and he took a 50-50 interest in the profits from the piping rock. Okay, yeah. And all during Prohibition, they were making more and more money, it sounds like, and they had open rain and they helped facilitate the movement of alcohol down to New York City. So it was a booming thing during Prohibition and during the Depression. Probably Depression sure. didn't affect them all that much. Yeah, they continued to gamble all through the 20s and 30s. It's kind of a more of a local story than of interest to a wider audience, but the local politicians and the local police chief, they were always, you know, turning a blind eye to what was going on, but it was so obvious. I can tell you two quick stories about how it sort of worked in Saratoga Springs. Remember the guy I told you, Sergeant Ed Carroll, who let the gangsters in and they yep. stole their stuff? Well, the next year they appointed him chief of police. <laughs> so he so he was chief of police for about a year and then he got ousted. Another guy was a guy named Detective Chief Rocks. Patrick Rocks. He was a detective and they did it. They accidentally, I call it accidentally, they did a raid because they were driving around the outskirts of town and they came to the Piping Rock Club and it wasn't supposed to be open because nobody had made the payoff yet. So they saw the lights on and the the cops went in and they discovered all these people gambling. Well, Detective Rocks got sent over to bring all the evidence, to secure all the evidence and bring it back. And when he got there, there were four roulette wheels. When he got to the station, there was only one. <laughs> so they gave him 10 days to bring the other three roulette wheels back to, to the uh, station. And well, when things he were did, different back then, weren't they? <laughs> things <right>. were different. <laughs> so they gave him 10 days, and when he didn't, they fired him. Now, the only problem with this is that between the time they fired him and the next year, there was an election. And the Commissioner of Public Safety reappointed him to be chief of police a month after he got fired for losing the gambling stuff at the, the uh, I'm sorry, it was Riley's Lake House. It wasn't piping rock, but yeah. it was right. In any event, you know, he, he only brings one roulette wheel when he's supposed to have three, he gets fired and then they just make him chief of police and he stays chief for another 15 years. So 15 years. Wow. Oh yeah. He, he stayed right through Kefauver. So I'll be damned. They must not have had a, a new broom to sweep clean like we did in 1938 and 39. We had a whole shift and fired almost every policeman we had and, you know, appointed a new chief of police and new board of police commissioners and, and everybody in the city government was new. So, wow. Then of course the war comes along. And then after the war, People kind of get started again and Kefauver, but by then Kefauver comes along and exposes all that, huh? Sure. The gamblers up in Saratoga, like everybody knew what was going on. You know, it's not like Meyer Lansky was hiding. He was going out to his place. Joe Adonis was eating his meals at the Piping Rock every day all throughout the 40s. And Luciano was in the Chicago club, Saratoga. We have pictures of him getting shaves by the local barber, you know, so people knew what was going on. Just nobody lifted a finger to stop it through the 40s. And then in the late 40s, two things happened. The state police sent an undercover guy to come in and make a survey, not an investigation, but a survey of what was going on. And then one of our local guys that was running a horse room, he lost a lot of money that his wife had given him to start a taxi cab business. 
he went and gambled it and lost it all. So she wrote to the governor saying, these are all the places that are open. What are you going to do about it? Well, right about this time, Keith Oliver was having their hearings down in New York City, and somebody mentioned Saratoga. So when you read uh, Keith Oliver's book, he says, so we shined our spotlight on Saratoga, and we uncovered basically a cesspool of organized crime and gambling up in Saratoga. And that's where you really had some of the testimony about Joe Adonis and Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, all being involved. By that time, Luciano had been deported, so he was not really part of that in Saratoga anymore. They uncovered all of these connections to the mob, to the local politicians, to the police. They discovered that the police were actually transporting the money, the nightly winnings from the casinos to the bank every night. Yeah. Now, the chief went publicly said, listen, I'd rather have the cops bringing this money in and not have robberies as opposed to letting them try to try to move their money themselves. So as a practical matter, I guess he was right because there yeah. weren't very many robberies, right? <laughs> right. You know, we used to have a few guys that I didn't do this, was not in a position. I'm glad I wasn't, but they didn't see anything wrong with it in the 70s. There was some different clubs. Would you know you're a district man? You'd be working dog wise. A club would close at one thirty in the morning, and and they'd give them like twenty bucks if they'd swing by, pick up the proceeds, go put them in the night deposit. It was a big no no, but a lot of guys did that. So, <laughs> you, know, you know, another interesting parallel. I just read I uh, was reading an old Kansas City Star article right after the war, around the Kefauver time, probably a little bit before. And our state police in Missouri did the same thing. They sent a couple of troopers undercover in Kansas City just to hang out in the different joints. And they reported, you know, what they were seeing and they'd ask who was who and they started picking up names. They'd go outside and, and pick up license numbers and cars, just like, you know, I did that myself in the, on up in sure. the 70s and 80s. And, and they did that kind of work, just like you're talking about, to figure out who was who and what was the extent of vice activities in Kansas City on the state level. And then Kefauver came along. I got a feeling throughout the whole United States that that probably went on. I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah, the Kefauver thing really, it kind of exposed the rottenness of it all. Yeah. And Kefauver is not a criminal investigation. So nobody's going to jail for any revelations in the Kefauver. So you got to have a local you know, grand jury gets convened. And that happens in Saratoga. And that, that runs for about five years. And they clean up all the gambling. And actually, Meyer Lansky goes to jail in the Saratoga County Jail. I think he got a nine-month sentence. The only time he went to prison his whole, his whole life. I didn't realize that. I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that. Yep. I think oh. he was sentenced to nine months here. Or maybe he did six, something, uh, something like that. Interesting. Yeah. You know, and, and get ready to have a movie come out about Meyer Lansky. Harvey Keitel is going to play Meyer Lansky. That'll, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that should be a good movie. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice they came up to Saratoga, though, while they were filming. <laughs> they may not have. Probably not. <laughs> but I don't know how they can. I don't know how they can avoid that. Well, we'll have to watch for that movie and see how yeah. accurate it is. I don't see how they can. It was a big part of the making of the mob in the United States because it was such a big profit center. It was so integral to the prohibition and gambling yeah. throughout the whole United States. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, as a kid growing up, I didn't know any of this stuff. I just kind of knew Saratoga as what I knew it as a kid. It was a little bit depressed when I was younger, but then the tourism came back and now we're a thriving city. I didn't know any of this stuff, but 
there's some fascinating stories. There's some shootouts that I talk about in the book. One of Legs Diamond's drivers was shot and dumped at the hospital. Oh, really? But he survived, so nobody remembers him. We have a connection to the Montreal Mafia. In my opinion, there was a, a murder in Saratoga Springs in 1936 that the Canadian Mafia waited 10 years, over 10 years, to get revenge on this guy. Wow. It's kind of an interesting story. I don't know if we have time to talk about it. It's sort of interesting. This Saratoga native, he's kind of a local gangster tough. He ends up getting involved in 1921 in a bank robbery. Well, they rob a messenger car, a bank messenger car in Montreal. There's a shootout. One of the gangsters is killed. One of the bank messengers is killed. And it's a large conspiracy of the top men in the Montreal Mafia. Well, the guy from Saratoga, he gets arrested on this robbery, and he testifies against the four guys who ended up going to the gallows over this uh, robbery murder. And so the Saratoga guy, his name is Adam Perillo, he spends, I think, 11 or 12 years in jail for his part in the crime. He's released in August. He comes back to Saratoga Springs. He's gunned down in September. Wow. Shot full of holes and dumped at the hospital. So and it's kind of a long, it's too long probably to tell on a podcast, but uh, it, it's a fascinating story. Folks, you'll all just have to get these books out I'm kind of running out of time here, Greg, but now okay. your second one, Gangster's Paradise, kind of give us an overview of that. Well, Gangster's Paradise is the story of the gamblers and gangsters in Saratoga Springs from Prohibition to Kefauver. Okay. Uh, so the first book is kind of a historical look. And frankly, it's more of an interest if you're from Saratoga. It, okay. it has the story about Rothstein, but it, it really tells more about Saratoga's history. A Gangster's Paradise tells, there's a chapter in there about fixing horse races, how they used to do it. Tells the story of the lake houses, the gambling with Lansky and Joe Adonis and, and Costello. Tells the story of the Kefauver Committee and the local investigation. It tells about that murder, the guy from, from Montreal. And then there's a chapter in there that's all about the various guys that came in during the time, but they didn't necessarily own a share of the casinos. Like Oni Madden would come here. He's on the cover of the book. The FBI's public enemy, number one, he was chased through Saratoga Springs, Alvin Karpis at the time. Mm. The two guys that Lindbergh offered to be go-betweens, the kidnappers in the underworld, if necessary, those two guys always used to vacation in Saratoga. So I kind of tell their little bit of their story. So that, that's what Gangster's Paradise is. It tells all about Prohibition with a focus on Saratoga Springs okay. and sort of the Prohibition age and some of the stories that... Every community, I think, has these where the prohibition agents would go in and then the neighborhood would come, fight them off. Yeah. You know, the local, yes. poli- the local yes. police would have to go in and rescue them from the local speakeasy. So <laughs> that's kind of more what, what Gangster's Paradise is. It's sort of a description of what Saratoga was like. The, the shootout, there's various shootouts. A house gets blown up. Like I said, Legs Diamond's driver, he was shot and dumped at the hospital stuff like that. Well, it sounds like a couple of great books. And I'll tell you one thing, you have a lot of good pictures in it and everything's footnoted that attributes to sources. So you can, it's accurate, accurate information. Where'd you get all those pictures? Is the local uh, historical society or something snag all those? Yeah, there's two, there's right. There's two resources. Well, three really resources. The Saratoga Springs city historian has a good collection of just general Saratoga photos. Yeah. The library has a whole collection on gambling. And then the Saratoga Springs History Museum, they have a lot of really good photos to use if, if you're interested in Saratoga Springs. Yeah. Well, that was kind of my sources. And, you know, I, as a note about the sources, uh, like I said, being a Saratoga guy, 
the murder of from by the Canadian mafia that I mentioned before, like that remains unsolved. Nobody was ever charged. Well, somebody was charged for that, but acquitted, but it remains unsolved. Everybody in Saratoga Springs has a story okay. that they were connected to that murder, right? Yeah. All, all of us who are go back a couple generations, you know, even, even my own family, my story is that my great grandfather was in the car when he was shot. Oh, really? And they, yeah. I knew that story since I was five years old. Yeah. By the time I figured out what it was, my grandfather was nowhere near that. So one of the things <laughs> that I made sure I did was I made sure that I can point to a source other than a local rumor. <laughs> the book would be a lot more colorful if I used local rumors and told <laughs> stories, but I tried to keep it to what's on the record so that, yeah, well, that's, you, know, uh, <laughs> you know, what's true. So well, We like that. Sometimes I say, you know, we never let the facts get in the way of a good story. But <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, uh, anyhow, they're great books. You can find them on Amazon.com, I'm sure. Do you have a website also? I yeah, my website is gangstersofsaratoga.com. Yeah, there's a lot of good information. A lot of those pictures and things are on there, folks. You ought to go visit that website, find out more about these books. Uh, you could probably order them off the website. Can order them off the I website. Think. If I could just plug a local bookstore called okay. Northshire.com, okay. N-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-R-E, Northshire.com. They're really my local partner. You know, in these times, we're all trying to, to shop local, right? Yeah. So You can order they're, from they're, their website, too. Correct. Yeah, I think they have free okay. shipping too. So. Oh, okay. Cool. Free yeah. shipping, folks. There, there you go. Yeah. Uh, they're great books. They're really interesting. They'd be an addition to anybody's collection of mob books. I have a couple of Facebook pages, one Gangland Wire and one's just Gangland Wire, kind of a private group just for fans. And, and you guys out there, if you listen to the podcast, look for my Gangland Wire Crime Stories, which is a private group, which I just let people in that are fans. It's not the general public. And so you won't get those crazy ass comments and everything on it. But I get pictures of people's collection of mob books and you guys that have collections of mob books. And I have my own over here. If you can, you can see over at the left, you can just see part of them. But the collections of mob books, these would be a great addition to your collection. Really interesting stories about the start of the national mob. Of you know, we talk about the commission and Atlantic City and all that, but a whole lot of these people were first getting together and making money up there in Saratoga Springs because there was money to be made up there, wasn't there, Greg? Oh, there was a ton of money, a ton of money to be made. Everybody could share and share alike up here. <laughs> yeah, and all those rich people came up there in the summertime to go to the races and whatever and, and uh, take the waters as they used to say and we forget that was such a big deal to go take the waters that's why hot springs was such a big deal we've got another one here excelsior springs in kansas city that supposedly capone came down and visited it and i bet they had a gambling casino there i've just not really delved into that we right. certainly had the carpet joints here in the city and it's a really colorful time in our history and Greg Beach has documented really well in these two books. All the law in the world won't stop them. And the second one is A Gangster's Paradise. Greg, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. And we will, uh, I'll let you know when I get this out. It'll probably be a couple, three more weeks. Got some stuff already scheduled out there, but got to get it edited and, and get ready to put out. Great, Gary. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great All talking right. to you. A any last things, any last words you want to say here? No, it's just, <laughs> listen, all I can say is we can celebrate our history without condoning it, right? <laughs> there you go. Right. Very diplomatic of you. I sure. kind of, I say the same thing, only I never say it so succinctly as what you just said. 
All right. That's what being a chief gets you. There you go. I was just a sergeant out there (laughs) grubbing around on the streets. (laughs) All right, Gary. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye, Greg. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now, I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.